Hello, and welcome to Probable Causation, a show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host, Jennifer Doliak of Texas A&M University, where I'm an economics professor and the director of the Justice Tech Lab. My guest this week is Panka Benchik. Panka is wrapping up her term as a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Chicago Urban Labs. And in the fall, she'll join Vanderbilt University as an assistant professor of medicine, health and society, and public policy. That is quite a title. Panka, welcome to the show. Hello. Today, we're going to talk about your research on police diversion programs for people arrested for narcotics possession. But before we get into that, could you tell us about your research expertise and how you became interested in this topic? This topic is really just a happy fit for me. I'm, I'm a crime economist and a health economist. Those are my two main research fields. And I'm especially interested in mental health and the opioid epidemic, which being one of the largest current public health challenges, I think offers so many opportunities for understanding it better. And the second piece that drew me to this research is that I'm very interested in research that is quite policy-centered. So getting to see policy in action, following along through the stages of the implementation and getting to evaluate the effects has been really, really interesting. And I'll come to this at the end once we talked about all of the research evidence that is currently in the paper. But one of the most exciting pieces with this is, this is hot of the press, that the Chicago program we are talking about today has very substantially expanded just a couple of days ago. And it has been a result of works of many city partners over years, as well as the results from the academic paper we are discussing today. So I couldn't imagine something more rewarding than treatment excess increasing for Chicagoans, in part as a result of this paper. Yeah, it's very cool. And, you know, as a researcher who cares about evidence-based policy, I was absolutely thrilled to see this news. I always love seeing when policymakers and practitioners use the evidence that we're all working so hard to create. So congrats on that. And thank you for this work. And I'm excited to tell everybody about it. So your paper is titled Policing Substance Use, Chicago's Treatment Program for Narcotics Arrests. And it's co-authored with Ashna Arora. So the country and world have been focused on COVID-19 as a primary health threat over the past couple of years, but deaths due to drug overdose, particularly opioid overdose, are still a major problem. So what is the current state of that crisis and how are governments responding to it? Last year, 2021, was the first year when there were over 100,000 drug overdoses. And I think it really speaks to the problem we are facing, that with the start of the pandemic in 2020, there was a 30% increase in deaths. And then this rate could increase further with 15% from 2020 to 2021. So there's a huge challenge ahead of us. And the pandemic means that treatment is harder to get. People feel more isolated. So it is really a huge issue with drug overdoses specifically. And as you mentioned, opioids are a big driver in this. About four out of five deaths are due to opioids specifically. Locally, in Cook County, where Chicago sits, there were nearly 2,000 deaths last year. And this is, just to put it in perspective, this is more than gun-related deaths and car accidents combined in a city that has one of the highest rates of gun violence in the U.S. And the city has responded in a number of ways to this. Earlier this year, they have distributed thousands of tests to detect fentanyl, which is a particularly lethal type of opioid. Over half of the public library branches started carrying Narcan that is just available for those who visit the library if in need. 
And then the city also just a few weeks ago started offering free medication to reduce the reliance on opioids. And they are doing this through a hotline. And then also the program includes free transportation to pharmacy or clinic to get the prescription field. So it's kind of touching on multiple pieces to get the medication to the person. Nationally, prescription limitations have been one of the policy tools, at least in the last five years for sure, that are being used to limit the reach of opioids. And then the increasingly wide access to Narcan has been a big step as well. Today, people can purchase Narcan without a prescription anywhere in the US. And just to give context, Narcan, which is the brand name of Naloxone, is an overdose reversal drug. Yeah, it's interesting how many different intervention types <laughs> we're, we're trying. It sort of seems like sort of an all hands on deck kind of yep, approach. Absolutely. So you and Ashna in this paper are focusing on a program involving the Chicago police, specifically the Narcotics Arrest Diversion Program, or NADP. So what is the NADP and how does it work? So the Narcotics Arrest Diversion Program is a program that runs in Chicago and offers those who were arrested with small amounts of opioids substance use treatment instead of jail. Today, it is the largest drug diversion program nationwide, both in terms of the area it serves and the number of individuals it has reached so far. So in explaining how the program works, let me talk for a little bit about what the process looks like from an individual's perspective who is arrested with substances. So when someone is arrested with small amounts of substances, this is usually less than, that is one gram or less of heroin, cocaine, or any of their analogs, they're taken to the police station. And at the station, the arresting officer evaluates whether the person meets the eligibility criteria for the program. I'll talk in a second about what makes someone eligible, but let's for the moment assume that the person is eligible. If so, they are taken within the police station to a substance use treatment counselor's room. So this is a really innovative piece in this program that there is a substance use treatment provider sitting in the police station and the person can have an immediate conversation with this counselor. During this conversation, the person's substance use levels are assessed and their best treatment needs and a personalized treatment option is offered for them. This could be detox or therapy, depends on what is best fitted for the specific individual. And then this program, which is run by Thresholds, the substance use treatment providers, which is Illinois, one of Illinois' oldest and largest uh, substance use mental health treatment provider, has this conversation. The person is offered treatment. And after the conversation, the person is released without charge and walks out of the police station. And they can opt to start, go to a treatment facility and start treatment right away or go the next day or go later on. But the criminal justice engagement ends right there. And in terms of what makes them someone eligible for this program, there is a Chicago Police Department general order. So general orders are how the Chicago PD communicates towards its officers all regulations. There's a general order that lays out the rules that make someone eligible. And there is a detailed list, but some of the key pieces is, as I mentioned, that the drug has to be one gram or less, which is about three days worth of use for a medium to heavy user. So clearly this is a policy intended for the buyer, not the seller. And then the person cannot have post-violent or gun-related convictions. They have to have an ID on them. They can't endanger the officer during the arrest procedure and a few other pieces. But these are some of the key parts. And so just to clarify what the person who's arrested has to do. So basically, if they say they're interested in this, they go meet with the counselor, they are potentially connected with 
with services, but then they're not obligated to do anything, right? They could just walk away. Exactly. Exactly. That makes it not obvious this is going to work. <laughs> yep, yep. That doesn't make it obvious. And we were really happy to see it working. What we are thinking of here is what is often termed deferred prosecution. So deferred prosecution is the situation when someone is not prosecuted at the time and won't be prosecuted as long as they fulfill a certain criteria. But in Chicago's case, there's no deferred prosecution. They are just simply never charged with a crime. And I think it speaks to how amazing the substance use treatment providers thresholds is that we see the vast majority of people starting treatment. Yeah. Okay. And so have any other cities implemented similar programs? How common is this approach? Drug diversion programs are increasingly common nationwide. The first such program started in Seattle in 2011, which was the Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion or LEAD program. And today, LEAD and LEAD-like programs have been adopted in a number of cities. I'll mention that LEAD is not a strict set of rules that every city follows identically, but it's more a set of guidelines and then each city can decide which pieces to use in their own local program. And then as a number of programs have been extending, the Narcotics Arrest Diversion Program started mid-2018. And NADP is innovative compared to LEAD in two ways. The first is that LEAD in LEAD, it is entirely up to the arresting officer, at least in most LEAD programs, including the initial Seattle LEAD. It's entirely up to the arresting officer to decide if a person would benefit from substance use treatment. And meanwhile, in NADP, the program takes the decision out of, it's not an officer decision, but it's a preset criteria. If someone meets the general order outline criteria, then they are eligible for diversion. So that's one piece where NADP is slightly different than many lead programs. And the other is the absence of deferred prosecution. So a lot of lead programs say that someone won't be prosecuted as long as they, for example, start treatment within 30 days. Chicago decided to not have this piece. And if you think of kind of sticks and carrots in a policy setting, then have an only carrots program where there is no expectation and it is up to the person to start the treatment or not, but their charges are just never filed. That's really interesting. So why might these programs affect individuals' outcomes, such as likelihood of arrest? What mechanisms should we have in mind here? When we think about affecting outcomes, an ADP has two arms or put differently, two things that happen to the arrest at once. They are released without charge and they are offered tailored substance use treatment. There's a growing evidence base that showed that diversion on its own is really important. But interestingly, in our case, we find that substance use treatment is at least as important in, in being a mechanism for the reduction in rearrests. And there are two reasons for this. First is that in Chicago, the state's attorney's office has deprioritized the prosecution of low-level drug offenses since the mid-2010s. So even non-eligible arrests are unlikely to end up in prosecution or long-term jail. And then the second piece is that we find that the population the program serves exhibits exceedingly high levels of substance use. A third of them have overdosed before. Nearly as many had Narcan administered to them. So the program is really successful in reaching a population for whom treatment can be hugely beneficial. And just to say a little bit more about the diversion piece, so I think there are a bunch of reasons diversion on its own could be useful, 
but I think one of the main ones is you just, you don't have that criminal record, right? Like you, you don't wind up with a formal conviction on your record for this. Exactly. And in the case of an ADP, not only that you don't have a conviction, but you never have a charge. Yeah. Yeah. So before this paper, what did we know about the effects of diversion programs in this general genre? Diversion programs in general have um, been featured in academic papers uh, quite a bit recently, which has been amazing to see. And there is a really exciting new set of papers, including your work, Jan, that showed that non-arrest and non-prosecution has neutral to positive effects on subsequent criminal justice involvement. So Beyond your work, I'm thinking of Mike Muller-Smith's and Kevin Schnapel's paper looking at Texas and Emily Weisbert's and colleagues' work looking at a range of cities nationwide. So I think there is a really nice, robust and growing evidence in terms of diversion programs. But when we specifically look at drug diversion and causal effects on the impact of drug diversion programs, specifically, the landscape is sparse. Most of the lead evaluation studies are, for example, descriptive in their nature. The one study I would mention here is Collins et al.'s work on the Seattle lead, but this is a small sample propensity score-based paper. So a read of the literature was that a causal causal paper in a big city like Chicago could really meaningfully move the space forward. Yeah. So why don't we know more than we do? I mean, you mentioned that these are increasingly popular programs. So what are the primary hurdles that researchers like yourself, need to overcome in order to measure the causal effects of a program like the NADP on the outcomes we care about? This project has been a huge multi-year lift that requires a strong (laughs) and sustained commitment among many partners. I'm going to list it out for you just to give you a sense of just kind of how long the list is. (laughs) NADP is a collaborative effort between the Mayor's Office of Chicago, the Chicago Department of Public Health, the Chicago Police Department, the Chicago High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area, Thresholds, the substance use treatment provider agency, and the University of Chicago Urban Labs and my co-author, Ashnaro, and myself as evaluators. So there is just so many pieces required in order for NADP to become reality. There needed to be stakeholder champions in each agency, training for the officers, Chicago PD's willingness to share data for the evaluation and many additional pieces. And kind of just stepping back and speaking more broadly about drug diversion programs in general, an additional challenge is data collection. Without the health and substance use engagement component, which most programs didn't collect, we couldn't understand how important the role treatment plays in this. And when it comes to identification, that also posed challenges before because a lot of programs didn't collect the outcomes for the control groups, for example, neighborhoods that didn't have the program. So it's much trickier to evaluate Causally, if a program like this has positive effects. So you're going to use the staggered rollout of the NADP across police districts in Chicago as a natural experiment. So tell us a bit about how the program was rolled out. Where and when was it implemented? The program started running mid-2018 in July 2018 on the west side of the city in the 11th policing district. To give you a sense, the policing district has about 70,000 residents, so it's equivalent of a small city. And this area has been the hardest hit by the opioid epidemic and has the highest rates of overdoses as well as drug possession arrests. So this area was clearly a space that was in need of policy interventions. And from this one district, 
through 2019 and 2020, the diversion program spread to the rest of the districts on the west side of the city and then gradually reached a citywide expansion by late 2021. So today it's running in the entire city. So how does this rollout then allow you to measure the causal effects of the NADP? Currently in the paper, we evaluate the expansion across the four west side districts that the program reached between mid-2018 and the end of 2020. And what we do is a triple difference design. So we are comparing neighborhoods with and without the program before and after the program start. And then for arrests that were eligible or not eligible. So we are taking the temporal aspect, the location, and the individual eligibility. And this is what gives us the triple difference design. Okay, great. And so then who is in that ineligible control group? Kind of stems from how the triple difference is set up that those are ineligible who are arrested before the program starts, who are arrested in not or not yet participating districts, and those who don't meet the eligibility criteria, such as those who have certain felony convictions or higher amounts of drugs. And this is not in the paper currently because it's a brand new policy, but I mentioned at the top this exciting change around drug arrests, more drug arrests being eligible as of just very recently. So let me share some details how this will shift those who are eligible versus ineligible. So the three key ways in which the Narcotics Arrest Diversion Program is expanding. First, it increases the weight of drugs from one gram to two grams. So that means that everyone is eligible with up to two grams of drugs as long as they meet the rest of the criteria. And then the second is that it expands the list of drugs substantially. So for example, meth, PCP, and ecstasy all became eligible for the diversion program. And then the third is that it is only gun and violent convictions in the past 10 years that um, make someone ineligible, while before these convictions, if they ever occurred, made someone ineligible. So what we end up with is that this opening of the policy increases the amount of people who are eligible by a good 50%. Yeah, that's really interesting. And uh, we DM'd about this a little bit, but I am looking forward to another evaluation down the road (laughs) when you all go to see what what happens um, as a result of this expansion. Okay, great. So what data are you using for this analysis? You've mentioned all the different stakeholders here (laughs) that had to come together. (laughs) So what data did that leave you with? Our data comes from three sources. The first is the Chicago PD, where we observe every drug arrest, and we know for each of them whether someone was eligible for the diversion program, whether they were released without charge, and then whether they were rearrested subsequently up until the end of the study period. The second piece comes from thresholds, and here we can understand for those who are consenting their substance use history and their substance use treatment engagement. So this is a very important piece, and we think that one of the spaces in which this paper really contributes to the literature is understanding what individuals look like who actually go through a drug diversion program. And then lastly, we have data from the Cook County Sheriff's Office on jail appearances, And this helps us understand what happens if someone is ineligible and what their process looks like post-police custody. And then, so are there certain outcomes within that that broader set of data that you're particularly interested in? Currently, the key 
causal outcome of the paper is subsequent criminal justice involvement. We want to see if the program is better for the person and for the community. The second key outcome is understanding of the characteristics of the diverted. Of course, this is descriptive because the ineligible don't meet the counselor, so this information is not collected, but I think it's incredibly important to know who are the individuals who are benefiting from the program. What is not in the paper currently, but is very important to us, is looking at overdose and other drug-related EMS calls. We are currently working on a data sharing agreement to access this data, and it would be really great to be able to tell if the program improves overdose-related outcomes directly. Oh, yeah, that's great. Fingers crossed. <laughs> that yes, works exactly. Out. <laughs> Before we dive into the results, I'm realizing I should ask a little bit more about it since you mentioned earlier that there were all these different agencies that had to come together, including you all as the evaluators. Does that mean you guys were involved kind of from the beginning of the program development? Were they planning to evaluate this all along? Yeah, we've been involved from very early on. And we were hoping to be able to evaluate it. And then Mm -hmm. the staggered rollout really nicely allowed us to do that. That's fantastic. Kudos to Mm -hmm. Chicago for uh, (laughs) for including you all in those conversations early. That's always, um, always very helpful. Yes, absolutely. And there's so much institutional context that I think being part of these conversations makes the research better because we Mm -hmm. know, we just have a better understanding of what's happening. Yeah, completely agree. Okay, so let's talk about what happened. What does take-up look like first? So what share of eligible arrestees are diverted? So once the program starts in a district, if we are looking at kind of six-month averages over time, once a district onboards, we see that there is definitely an on-ramp in the first six months as everyone gets used to the program. And then diversion rates settle at about 40%. Of course, this is not 100%, and there are three reasons for this. First, the person might decide to not want to take part in the diversion program. So if someone, if if an arrestee opts not to take part, then they would just go through the criminal justice system as usual. This is very rare. It does happen in the first one and a half years of the program. There were two such arrests where the person opted not to take part. The second is that the clinicians can't always be reached. By and large, when a district on boards, the clinicians say that please call us at any hours. We we are trying to come and we will do our very best to come and meet this person. But there are certain clinician hours when it's easier to do those diversions and outside of those hours, it's not guaranteed that a clinician will be able to be reached. And then the third is that the police officer might have not diverted an individual because they were not aware of the program or for other reasons. And unfortunately, we can't disentangle these three causes. We don't really know if an officer didn't call the counselor or called the counselor, but the counselor didn't pick up or they picked up, but they couldn't come. So these are just kind of a bundle. The one piece I would mention here is that the Chicago PD is very committed to diverting Everyone, they can divert and eligible. And we regularly report back to them on diversion rates. And District 11, where the program initially started and which has most of the drug possession arrests, consistently does some of the best in terms of diversion rates. And in the last few months, districts across the city have also shown higher rates here. Do you know if diverting someone to this program would mean less paperwork for the arresting police officer? That's a great question. We don't know. 
Okay. <laughs> it just occurs to me like the, I'm just trying to think about like, would a police officer have an incentive to, to send someone through this program? Or I imagine it, it seems unlikely it would be an extra burden, but it seems plausible that it could actually make their job easier, in which case we'd be even less worried about that potential channel. Yeah. We, the one piece we can say for sure is that the officer has to bring the individual to the police station to be able to evaluate whether they are eligible for the program or not, mm -hmm. um, because that's where they can check their system. So my guess is that the majority of the time is relatively similar. We don't know kind of the edges. Got it. Sounds like your hunch, at least from my read of the paper, your hunch was that most of the kind of less than 100% take up is because they're basically office hours for the substance use counselor and they could be reached after hours. But of course, that's not going to be all the time. Was I reading that correctly? We genuinely can take apart whether the counselors are harder to reach or the officers are not completing every diversion. So I'm not going to take a stand on that. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> All right, let's see. So then you use data from the treatment provider to get a sense of what the diverted population looks like, at least for the subset of people who consented to sharing their data with their research team. So what do those data show? We see a number of things. I hinted at this earlier, but looking at substance use history, 90% of the individuals meet the medically diagnosed criteria for a substance use disorder. So that's an incredibly high number. And another nearly quarter meet the criteria for an additional mental health disorder. A third of the individuals have overdosed before. Nearly as many had Narcan administered to them. Most who used heroin in the past year use it every single day. So this is a population that can really benefit from treatment. And by, they are by no means an occasional user in terms of their characteristics. And then looking at demographics, the majority of the diverted individuals are Black men. And then in terms of age, we see something that I think is really interesting and reassuring that when we started this study, the average age of overdose victims in Chicago was 47. I think this number is potentially somewhat of a surprise to some, at least those who are not directly in the substance use space. And what was fascinating to us is that we see this precisely reflected in the data. The average age of the diverted individuals is 47. So those who the program catches are just the age profile as those who are the highest risk of dying of an overdose, which I thought was really important. And I was just reading an article on local overdose patterns in 2021, and that exact age still holds. It is, with all the changes the pandemic brought, it is still such a persistent trend that that is the most highest risk age for overdoses. And that is exactly what the age profile of the diverted individuals looks like. Is those the people that this program is reaching? Yep. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so next set of results, uh, and perhaps your main your main result. <laughs> what is the effect of diversion on the likelihood of being arrested again? We find that those who are eligible for diversion are significantly less likely to be rearrested subsequently. There's a drop of seventeen percentage points, and it comes from a range of crimes, including drugs, violent, and other crimes. And we do a back of the envelope 
calculation to account for not every eligible person being diverted. And we find a 44% reduction as a treatment on the treated value. So this is 44%. This is a large number, but it is also in line with numbers from smaller lead city studies. So we think that this is a really really promising result on this program, especially because the reduction in violent crimes also suggests a potential increase in public safety in the community. So it looks like it's able to benefit the individual as well as the community. Yeah, those effects are just huge. So if someone isn't diverted here and they go through the usual system, would they normally be put on for this type of offense? Would they normally be put on probation or would they serve jail time? What would be the alternative here? Most of the individuals don't end up serving jail time. Mm -hmm. It's generally less than one day in jail. Mm -hmm. But in terms of what their bail outcomes are is a piece that we are working on currently. (laughs) Okay. So there could be some, just thinking about like one might expect sort of a mechanical effect if there's any time spent incarcerated, then you would expect those who are diverted to be reoffending more just because they're out on the street. And the fact, so the fact that you're finding such a big reduction <laughs> in rearrests yeah. is even more impressive than Yeah, there is kind of a, a voluntary slash involuntary incapacitation theory that we could think of both for the diverted and the ineligible, for the mm-hmm. ineligible potentially jail, for the diverted potentially like detox or another mm-hmm. substance use treatment provision. But we end up seeing that neither of these last any length that would meaningfully affect outcomes. So they wouldn't explain the results that you're seeing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you then run a bunch of additional analyses to dig into these results a bit more and confirm that they're showing the causal effect of the diversion program. So maybe pick one or two of your favorite checks and tell us about them and what they show. Let me pick two that are related to whether there were behavior changes among the two key groups involved in the process of police officers and those purchasing drugs. I feel like these two robustness checks kind of go together nicely. So thinking about the police officers, one could imagine changes in police officer behavior in two ways. On the one hand, once the policy rolls out, police officers might hypothetically think that eligible individuals will get diverted out of the criminal justice system anyways, so they could be less likely to make those arrests. On the other hand, one could imagine police officers thinking that it is a really effective way to connect people with counselors. They are right there in the police station, so they might make more arrests to make these connections. In practice, we do not observe either of these taking place. The ratio of those who are eligible and ineligible is identical pre and post program start. So we end up seeing that the officers just continue with their approach before investigating suspicious activity. And I also mentioned here that just to give an intuitive explanation as well is that it's essentially impossible for an officer to determine if a person is eligible without making the arrest and taking the person to the police station because they would need to know whether the drug is precisely less than one gram, whether the person has past conviction. So all of these are things that they can check well at the police station. So the officer couldn't tell if they are making an eligible or ineligible arrest. And then kind of the mirror check of this is the behavior of those who purchase drugs. We could imagine that once the policy goes into effect, the quote-unquote cost of purchasing narcotics in District 11, where the program is running, is lower because of the diversion, so people might opt to change their drug purchasing neighborhood. However, 
we don't observe this to be the case. The ratio of those who are arrested with drugs in 11 and are local to the neighborhood are identical to pre and post implementation. So we don't see shifts in purchasing locations. All right. So you've already told us a little bit that Chicago has paid attention to these research results and is expanding the program. But more broadly, for other people listening in other cities, what do you see as the policy implications of these results? What should other policymakers and practitioners be taking away from all this? I think the bottom line is that it is possible to simultaneously reduce the reach of the criminal justice system and connect many, many people with treatment. In this process, then we have an additional gain of increased public safety for the neighborhoods. So I think policymakers should take away what Chicago opted to do and run and then expand drug diversion programs. Are there other papers related to this topic that have come out since you first started working on this study? Yes. Uh, Really exciting literature that has been expanding along with our study going on is at the intersection of mental health care and crime. The three papers I want to mention here are Monica Dezan, co-authors, Mary-Kate Batistich and colleagues, and Elisa Jacom, and all three find in different contexts that access to mental health care reduces crime. So I think this is a really relevant literature for us because of the overlap of substance use and mental health disorders, both nationally and then in our sample. And then the other relevant piece here, not an academic paper, but a policy, is the White House's state model law on drug diversion. So this just came out this March, and this act encourages the establishment of drug diversion programs at the state level. And it's essentially a template of suggested legislative legislative provisions. So it's really exciting to see that there's more, more and more guidance as well as more evidence around these programs and how other cities and jurisdictions could implement them. Yeah, it's interesting, as you mentioned, the other, the papers on other healthcare programs. One thing that has seems to be coming up again and again, um, and I'm thinking of that study out of Leo by um, Mary-Kate Batistich and colleagues, and also the recent paper in Norway where they look at the health effects of prison. And then your paper ties in here too, in a way that I hadn't thought about before. The punchline from a lot of these really seems to be that even in settings where healthcare is available, right? So any of these people who are connected with healthcare by these programs could have just walked in presumably before and gotten this help. And often, you know, we might, in a lot of these settings, we probably thought that the care was very salient. Like people knew this, (laughs) that the healthcare was available. And yet these programs seem to be having big effects just by making the connection by like, by actually directly reaching out to somebody and saying, here, we'll, we'll make that first appointment um, and get the ball rolling. Um, And so really, I think it's just really striking how important that relatively small and cheap step (laughs) is. And, and yeah, and it's relevant in your context too. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of substance use and mental health treatment provider agencies think of this as warm handoff. The idea that one agency is able to connect the individual with another agency support or another provider support very directly. So Mary-Kate, but it's the Leo paper. They are looking at people who have just exited jail and they are getting the call about health supports kind of right away. And in our case as well, I emphasize that the substance use treatment provider sits right there in the police station. So there isn't, there is no way to that connection not to be made. And I think 
one policy area I would love to look at more and evaluate more is these type of warm handoffs and what they can do at a relatively low cost, exactly as you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just amazing how seems like low hanging fruit, right? Like yes. <laughs> there's so yes. many policies that are so complicated to implement and so expensive to implement. And this idea that we could just, yeah, do these warm handoffs more often. And that could actually, that could reduce re-arrest by 17 percentage points. Like that's just, just amazing. I should mention, I had David Phillips on the show to talk about that paper um, on the connecting people coming out of jail Mm -hmm. with mental health care. So I will put a link to that in the show notes as well. Yes, please. All right. So what's the research frontier here? What are the next big questions in this area that you and others are going to be thinking about in the years ahead? I think the big question is how to slow down overdoses. There are a number of policy tools and research evaluations at various stages of the opioid distribution and consumption process. And yet we don't have a clear-cut answer to reversing the growth in overdose deaths, which has been just huge in the last few years. So I think looking ahead, something that I would love to continue to work on is looking at policies that can be potentially effective at taking bites out at various stages of the opioid epidemic. One piece of that, evaluating the expanded version of the Chicago program, but I think there is a lot more policies that are just rolling out, kind of as we discussed at the top, that we could learn so much from. Yeah, there have been so many smart people thinking about this for so many years, and it's really a bit depressing how much more work there still is, Uh, which is, I don't know, maybe the theme of this show. So uh, (laughs) another depressing area where we need more work. So I'm glad you're on the case. My guest today has been Panka Benchik from the University of Chicago, moving soon to Vanderbilt University. Panka, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for having me. This has been such a pleasure. You can find links to all the research we discussed today on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Emergent Ventures for supporting the show. And thanks also to our Patreon subscribers and other contributors. Probable Causation is produced by Doliac Initiatives, a 501c3 nonprofit. So all contributions are tax deductible. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us via Patreon or with a one-time donation on our website. Please also consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This helps others find the show, which we very much appreciate. Our sound engineer is John Kerr with production assistance from Nefertari El-Sheikh. Our music is by Werner and our logo was designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you in two weeks.